there's been a big sort of PR effort going on to greenwash Bitcoin. It's being fronted by Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey from Twitter's got involved. And, you know, this is basically a futile PR exercise, in my view. The problem is that it's a losing battle, right? I mean, the whole point of Bitcoin is the amount of energy it uses. Make it more efficient. It doesn't make any sense because the security comes from the amount of energy that you use. So if you use less energy, it's less secure. Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. I'm Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus, and I'm joined by my co-host Christine Kim, research associate at Coindesk. Hey guys. This week we have some spicy topics lined up for you. We're going to talk about Ether trading volumes, the ongoing development of NFT markets, and I'm going to have a little rant about energy usage, so stay tuned for that. But we'll get started with our community segment. This is where we discuss interesting developments and trends emerging on Ethereum and in its DAP ecosystem. So Christine, what's on your mind this week? Well, so hello, everyone. Thanks, Ben, for that amazing intro. News dropped last Wednesday that billionaire investor Mark Cuban has apparently made an investment in Polygon, a layer two Ethereum scaling solution. And normally, I'm not the type to really balk at you know, funding rounds or investment announcements. But this one caught my attention because this announcement comes at the heels of actually several news articles and headlines about investment activity and user interest into layer two Ethereum scaling solutions. Back in March, Matter Labs, another layer two Ethereum scaling solution, raised an undisclosed amount from lead investor Union Square Ventures, which is this venture fund that notably invested in mainstream brands like Twitter, SoundCloud, Etsy back in the day. Optimism, another scaling startup in February, announced a $25 million Series A funding round led by venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. So honestly, it was just like, it seemed like capital galore going into layer twos. And if any of our listeners were around for consensus this week. We also heard a lot of DeFi developers, Aave, Nexus Mutual, DeFi Saver, all of these applications talking about how layer two scaling is going to be the solution to one of their biggest challenges, which is just high fees and, and limited transaction throughput on Ethereum. So it's a fast growing part of the Ethereum ecosystem I wanted to spend some time talking about today. I listed a bunch of names right now. Ben, has layer two scaling been on your mind? I know you're more focused on the protocol layer, kind of how to change Ethereum to be more scalable from the ground up. But these layer two scaling solutions are clearly gaining a lot of traction, a lot of steam. And many people think that it's coming a lot sooner than Ethereum 2 will. It's uh, incredible how fast things are happening. And we've kind of delegated the scalability outside the core protocol and pushed it to, to layer two. And that's sort of been an explicit strategy and people are really picking that up and running with that at the moment is brilliant to see what are the kind of options i mean there's so much going on we've got polygon 
you, you mentioned, which is kind of not a side chain and not really a layer two. It's sort of its own unique scaling solution. Been a bit of controversy on Twitter, you know, Twitter controversy, not real controversy, but uh, <laughs> Twitter argument about its sort of security model and that kind of thing recently. But it, it seems to be a, a force for good and people are adopting Polygon in droves and really flocking to it uh, as a platform. I think it benefits from a kind of first mover advantage. It's been under development for quite a while now and has really sort of come first to market as a, a general purpose scaling solution. So that's uh, definitely one to watch. And then we've got optimistic rollups, which are uh, a different beast from Polygon and have, I think, better understood security properties, very strong security, really inheriting the layer one, the Ethereum protocol security. Uh, I think Arbitrum is launched or just about launched now-ish, and Optimism is is the other one that I know about in that fold. And they are great because they're general purpose. You can deploy pretty much standard EVM bytecode. You can compile your Solidity smart contracts and just deploy them. And so it's really easy to carry over your applications to, to these platforms. So you can run Uniswap or whatever. You just port it straight over. But I think the real winner in the long term, we're talking, I don't know, maybe two to three years, perhaps a bit longer, is going to be what we call ZK rollup. Uh, and these use, you know, funky new cryptography to make security guarantees. Uh, there are some at the moment. There's ZK Sync and Starkware has a ZK rollup solution and they're in production, but they're, they're kind of special purpose at the moment. They are not able today to take output of the Solidity compiler and run, you know, the standard smart contract stuff. Uh, that needs to be worked on over, over a bit of time. But I think they have the best trade-offs and best all-round properties in years to come. So yeah, really, really fascinating area. And why is it that ZK rollups are that much more difficult to make general purpose? Do you know what the blocker is there? Yeah, it's all about the cryptographic guarantees. And so there's a security model. So how do you prove that nothing has gone wrong on the rollup? How can you be confident that all of the transactions that people are putting onto these things are correctly executed and nobody's funds are being stolen or arbitrarily moved or changed or whatever. And optimistic rollups have a different security model from ZK rollups. Optimistic rollups rely on a, a fraud proof mechanism. So they publish the state of the chain and the transactions to the layer one, to Ethereum, and rely on people spotting if there is anything that's gone wrong. You know, if the uh, rollup operator has acted incorrectly, and there's a week or two week period where, you know, you or I could challenge the, the transaction, then it's replayed on the main chain and checked whether it's correct or not. That relies on sort of crypto economic guarantees. There are, you know, if we prove that the operator acted wrongfully, they would be slashed and we would get a reward. So there's an incentive to do that. ZK rollups use this cryptographic ZK snark or ZK stark construction, and they prove that they have always acted correctly. So the operator puts a proof on the main chain that they acted correctly, and anyone can check that proof, and, and it can't be faked. That means you don't have this kind of week-long waiting period after a transaction before it sort of becomes final. It's instantly final. But the trade-off is that it's much harder to prove things generally. So if we want to do a generalized computation like Uniswap, uh, take that as an example, 
proving things about this complex system is hard using the ZK Stark or Snark technology and you know, general techniques are kind of known, but they're not yet very practical. So that's the only thing holding them back, I think, from becoming the long-term platform of choice. Interesting to know the the technical side of things. I know this is the community update part, but sometimes they're just so <laughs> merged together. And from what you're saying, seem like a matter of time until we figure that out, though, for how to make ZK Stark's Snark technology more generalized and accessible to just all decentralized application developers and users. The way that I think about the layer two scaling ecosystem and sphere being developed on Ethereum right now pretty rapidly is similar to how I saw the smart contract blockchain ecosystem almost develop. Like Ethereum was first and the most users and developers kind of jumped on it, started to use it, their ecosystem started to build. Then you had a lot of competitors come later, but because Ethereum always maintained its security and decentralization and it had the first mover advantage, it ultimately became like the dominant uh, smart contract platform. Ben, do you foresee the same kind of dynamics playing out in the layer two ecosystem? Or do you think that it's going to be a lot more diverse? You had mentioned that Polygon mm. is, has the first mover advantage. And I've actually heard a lot about Polygon as well. I've heard a lot of interesting market stories about how their token has just, yeah, really appreciated mm. this past year. And I'm wondering if Polygon is the one that will attract the most users in decentralized applications and if the other layer two scaling solutions will kind of start to fizzle out. It's going to be really interesting to see. I find it hard to guess at the moment. I think one challenge is that you can't have just one roll-up. That doesn't really help you with your scalability because the scalability properties of a single roll-up are pretty much the same as that of the base chain. So to get the advantage, you need to have many roll-ups in parallel. Then you gain much more transaction throughput. So there's definitely room for plenty of roll-ups. But what you lose, the downside of that is you lose the kind of composability between them. So if you've got apps on one rollup that need to talk to apps on another rollup, then that's kind of slow and cumbersome. So there are trade-offs all over the space, and it's kind of hard to, to see how this is going to, to fall out. So I'm, I'm not going to make any predictions on this. I think with Polygon, it's certainly gaining a lot of traction. And I think it will depend on how people feel in the long term about the security trade-offs and the security model, whether they really want the very high security of a roll-up or are they content with the different model that Polygon has. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to pumapay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit pumapay.io today. That's pumapay.io. Let's do a quick one-on-one for our listeners on the Twitter drama about the security trade-offs with Polygon, just because I do foresee it continuing to be a subject matter of like contention. It's definitely a topic we're going to keep talking about. So yeah, I think this is something I need to look into more, more deeply to before I can speak uh, authoritatively on this. The sort of the question was framed as, is Polygon a sidechain or is Polygon an L2, a layer two on Ethereum? And basically the bottom line is nobody really knows what defines a sidechain or what defines an L2. So there's a lot of arguing about words. But uh, as far as I can see, the security of your funds on Polygon 
comes down to the security of the bridge, which takes care of moving those funds between Ethereum and the Polygon chain. And so understanding the security model of that bridge, which is definitely lower than that of the Ethereum base chain, is, is really the critical part. But, you know, most DeFi DGens don't don't care about this at all. So <laughs> they'll throw, throw money at anything. Yeah. So. <laughs> and as I understand the difference and like one of the main points of contention between is it a side chain or is it a, a layer two, is that layer two scaling solutions try or at least attempt to make their security always rooted and anchored based off of directly the Ethereum blockchain. Whereas side chains, like you said, have a bridge functionality that is interoperable or connected to the Ethereum blockchain, but does not directly d gain its like finality or its security from the Ethereum protocol base layer. Is that correct? That's definitely a reasonable point of view. <laughs> I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you've cut through the, uh, the, the Twitter noise very nicely. Okay, well, this is definitely a tough topic we're going to come back to. It's going to get a lot more heated and probably a lot more competitive in the months to come. And we'll try and bring on a guest in a future episode to also shed some light. But I want to move on in our show now to talk about some markets updates. I've got two quick markets updates. The first is actually a pretty exciting one, the more that I looked into it. So spot trading volumes for cryptocurrency Ether have surpassed that of Bitcoins. Historically, Bitcoin trading volumes have almost always trumped Ether trading volumes. But for five days straight from May 25th to May 26th, ETH daily spot trading volumes have been soaring and reaching new all-time highs of more than $20 billion, according to Masari data. And the reason why this is significant is because, you know, Bitcoin's dominance, its market capitalization usually is like... 80%, 90%, the vast majority of the entire cryptocurrency sphere. But during bull markets, historically, we've seen that dominance fall. And we've seen other altcoins like Ether, like, you know, smaller market cap coins grow larger, so much so that Bitcoin's dominance drops to like 40% or 45%. And so that's happened before. And that's not quite too significant. It's usually just a sign that we're in a crypto bull market. But this switch of Ethereum trading volumes surpassing that of Bitcoins, not just for a day, but for almost a full week, and it, it appears to continue to, to compete with that of Bitcoins, is a pretty significant, never before seen development in the crypto markets. So some people say that this is a long lasting sign that Bitcoin's dominance might never again reach what it used to be before the start of this 2021 crypto bull run, which I was like, whoa, that's that's kind of interesting. I'm not as surprised as you are, I think, Christine. <laughs> I just, you know, uh, from my perspective, yeah, Bitcoin does one thing, you know, you buy it to hold it. Whereas, yeah, Ethereum is a whole ecosystem of things you can do with it, the whole DeFi thing, among others. I think that means it gets traded a lot more. People buy and sell much more actively. So, and this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be in future. You mentioned the flippening, I think. Pretty much the only thing we haven't flipped Bitcoin on is market cap, but we got almost halfway there. We've slipped back a bit in recent days, so I don't think it's going to be long. I mean, you're right. It could be that many retail investors, institutional investors are starting to wake up to the unique value proposition of Ethereum as compared to Bitcoin. I really think that there is a lot more understanding and greater sophistication when it comes to, yeah, differentiating coins from each other. So it's pretty exciting. It's very exciting. I really think that there's a lot more adoption yet to come, but we're clearly in a very good space right now. 
So the second market update that I want to give is an update on the NFT market, non-fungible tokens. We haven't really talked about these a lot, but I'm going to start the ball off with talking about the Associated Press. It's a news organization and it's auctioning 10 NFTs celebrating 175 years of photojournalism. And these pieces represent some of history's most recognizable photographs. And you can look them up just by Googling Associated Press NFT photojournalism. But they're all, these 10 NFTs are all up for bid on the marketplace OpenSea. And the last time that the AP sold an NFT, it sold for 100 ETH, worth roughly $180,000 at the time. So it's mainstream news organizations like AP, it's mainstream artists like Lindsay Lohan, we've got athletes like Tom Brady, all piling into the NFT market, which you may have heard about, you know, a couple of months back with the Beeple Christie's auction, but I'm here to tell you that the NFT market is not cooling down. There's still a lot of activity going on uh, with NFTs. And one of the difficulties actually that I've seen with the NFT craze and hype is how do you differentiate between what is an authentic NFT and what is not? Ben, is this something that you found difficulty with at all as you've kind of experimented or if you have experimented at all with buying and selling NFTs on marketplaces like OpenSea, Rarible, the like? I love this because I think it's almost like there are two different worlds. There's a, there's a crypto world and there's an NFT world and they overlap. But, you know, to a large extent, I, I think they're quite disjoint and you can be a crypto person and, and not have anything to do with NFTs or, you know, uh, NFTs as art. And you can be an NFT person and really not have any understanding of blockchain or, or even know that you're using a blockchain. This is what success looks like for me. I've always said that blockchains succeed when they enable applications and the users have no idea that the technology is a blockchain. That's, I think, when we're just mainstream and we just become infrastructure and that's what success looks like. So I'm excited about this application area because I think it takes the technology we're developing, but we're no longer just introspective people just doing kind of blockchain stuff amongst ourselves. We're enabling things which people who are not technologists want to engage with. And I think this is terrific. Recently, I did this article about duplicates of the infamous Beeple artwork that was sold on a Christie's auction being duplicated and, and like fake copies of it going on sale on OpenSea and Rarible. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about infrastructure, about NFT marketplace infrastructure, was that the connection between how NFTs get authenticated on marketplaces like OpenSea, Rarible, are very different from the kind of authentication that the blockchain is supposed to provide for immutable, totally transparent transactions. So what I mean is with this case of a Beeple counterfeit NFT, on Rarible and on OpenSea, you could see that this artwork is verified. It has like that Twitter verified, almost similar symbol that this is a, a token that was created, was commissioned by a very famous artist, Beeple, mm. in this example. And then as a person who doesn't understand the blockchain layer and only looks at the NFT marketplace layer, you think to yourself, wow, you know, Beeple created another piece of artwork, let me bid on it. But you go one step further, and if you're one of those people who is like, this looks fishy, and I understand how to use Etherscan, let me go and check on Etherscan whether or not this is really an NFT piece created by Beeple. Even on the Etherscan blockchain side, there are ways in which to pretend almost like fake NFTs 
into the actual account and actual wallet of Beeple on the blockchain, like make that NFT go into his wallet on the blockchain and then move that NFT to a different wallet, say Vitalik's known, you know, Ethereum wallet or like the known Ethereum wallet of Lindsay Lohan or somebody famous. Even on the blockchain, it, it really doesn't help you that much to be able to authenticate whether or not these NFTs or these tokens are really created, owned and held by these famous people. But the one place where you can kind of authenticate and determine whether or not this is a real artwork, a real NFT is by going to like the auction house itself. Here on the Christie's website, it says that the NFT was created through this smart contract address with this token ID. And then when you go back to your OpenSea account, when you go back to Rarible, when you go back to Etherscan, the blockchain, you can tell that, oh, this was commissioned actually by a different smart contract address. Mm. This has a different token ID. So I think those kinds of tools to be able to teach users how to differentiate between NFTs, even if you're a very knowledgeable person when it comes to blockchain is really critical because those kinds of learnings is still not quite developed yet. And it's one thing that I, I really want to keep educating the public on and hopefully I'll write more articles about. Yeah, that would be great. Right. Let's move on to our final segment, which is the long awaited tech update uh, this week. I want to talk about huge energy savings we're going to have when Ethereum switches off proof of work or proof of waste, as I've come to call it, and moves to proof of stake. So Carl from the Ethereum Foundation posted a very nice article last week on the Ethereum blog. You can find it at blog.ethereum.org. Uh, and the title is A Country's Worth of Power No More. And that's a reference to the fact that Ethereum mining uses more power today than the entire country of Peru. And that's horrible. But Carl's estimate, and he walks through the numbers in his article, is that after the merge, after we've moved all of Ethereum over to proof of stake, we will be using less than one two thousandth of the amount of power. So we will reduce power consumption by 99.95% or more, which is uh, terrific. So I'll tell you why this is on my mind, because the article turns out to be very timely. And I don't know if you noticed, Christine, but over the last week or 10 days, there's been a big sort of PR effort going on to greenwash Bitcoin. It's being fronted by Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey from Twitter's got involved. And, you know, this is basically a futile PR exercise, in my view, just a greenwashing. Well, uh, have you seen this? What do you think? I thought that Elon Musk was the one to say that Bitcoin's energy consumption was something that was very concerning to him, which is why he wasn't going to allow payments of Tesla's in Bitcoin. So I wasn't aware that he was trying to greenwash Bitcoin. <laughs> I think he was also creating like some kind of a committee to figure out how to make mining more energy sustainable using more renewable energy sources, which I thought was great. I wasn't quite aware of Elon Musk's PR attempts? I thought it was actually the opposite. I, I don't, And I don't know exactly what happened with Jack Dorsey on Twitter. So definitely fill me in. Yeah. So the problem is that it's a losing battle, right? I mean, the whole point of Bitcoin is the amount of energy it uses. Make it more efficient. It doesn't make any sense because the security comes from the amount of energy that you use. So if you use less energy, it's less secure. This whole thing about convening a committee to make it more efficient uh, doesn't add up. The green power kind of thing is, is interesting, but when there's a solution out there that you, is 2,000 times more efficient, proof of stake, why would you go down that route? It doesn't make sense. So that's why I say it's futile in the end. 
the Jack Dorsey was what really provoked me because he posted on Twitter. He quoted an article which was favorable towards Bitcoin proof of work mining. And somebody replied to him with Carl's article saying, well, have you looked at proof of stake? This is, you know, 2000 times more efficient. And his reply was just four words. He just said, less security, more centralization. <laughs> just so wrong. I mean, this is completely wrong. And you got to wonder who's advising him. Ethereum's proof of stake is absolutely and quantifiably more secure than proof of work. And yeah, there are centralizing pressures in Ethereum, but they are way less than those in Bitcoin. So I was kind of disappointed with that and that triggered me. So hence the rant. <laughs> Question. I mean, when we're talking about security, like you said, Bitcoin security comes from the amount of energy that goes into the protocol. But conversely, Ethereum's proof of stake security comes from the amount of wealth, the amount of money that goes into the protocol. So, I mean, is really one more damaging than the other? Because like you'd have to spend your money on energy and then, you know, you give security to the Bitcoin blockchain. But then you could also spend your money on Ethereum and then you'd give security to the Ethereum. So it just seems like value to me in my yeah. mind, like... Yeah. Well, that, that's exactly a point. So given a certain budget, how do you get your security? And one destroys a planet and one just moves some numbers around inside computers. This is the, the difference. And why I say if you've got a given security budget, so you want to defend against an attacker who has, say, $10 billion at their disposal. In Bitcoin, it's very difficult. They acquire, if the attacker acquires enough hardware and they can just outwork you, so it's a 51% attack, they've just got more hash power than you have, then there's nothing you can do to defend against that. They will just keep coming and coming. They're earning block re rewards on their chain, which pays for their power, and they can come and attack you again and again and again. You might as well just give up. The only thing you can do is change your mining algorithm but that kills all of the miners who've got ASICs running on your current network. So it's a disaster. Whereas in proof of stake, if somebody who's got $10 billion, they want to attack your chain, the first time they try it, they might succeed, but then they're going to get slashed across the protocol. You're burning down their ASIC farm effectively. You know, their, their stake is taken away by the protocol. They can't do it again. They're going to have to reacquire that whole wealth again. And now, so they've attacked the chain once, but we can come to social consensus and just fork them off the chain and just say, this is obviously an attacker. We agree to fork them out of the validator set and we just get on with our lives. They've lost their $10 billion and everything's fine. But the same kind of social coordination that would be required to kind of like fork that one attacker off the chain is the same kind of social coordination that could happen on, on Bitcoin, correct? And then also on the proof of stake side, if the attacker has so much wealth as basically the largest whale on Ethereum and just owns like 80, 90% of Ether out in circulation, then I don't know if there's going to be very many people able to report him to the authorities, which is like the <laughs> Ethereum protocol network, if all of the validators are, are under that guy's control. And then on the topic of just renewable energy, I mean, for society to function, there's not going to be a society that doesn't ever use any energy at all. I think the whole point of energy consumption is not energy equals the environment comes to a collapse. It's like, how do we use energy in a way that doesn't hurt the environment? But like, there's no way that we can avoid not using energy because we need energy in order for society to go around. Yeah, that's, that's a whole big subject of its own. Renewable energy is not costless. I mean, putting in the infrastructure and, and everything is a huge 
deal and better to use that energy for something which is you know purposeful and useful than for mining Bitcoin. On your point about the difference between proof of stake and proof of work is that proof of work is truly permissionless. So the attacker can be totally anonymous and there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas in proof of stake, you know, in the sense of, you know, the accounts of who is mounting an attack and you can explicitly fork those accounts off the chain. So there, there is a, a genuine difference in the security model in the sense that uh, you have a lot more control over in proof of stake if the community agreed you know, on mass, the majority of stakers that a particular set of accounts was malicious, they could be forked off the chain. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that there was that kind of a, it's almost like giving more power to the community behind mm. Ethereum as in that Bitcoin, the community is a lot more unknown and anonymous, whereas on, on Ethereum, everybody is known through their account and that mm. has ramifications for what you can do on the Ethereum ecosystem. You could become a blacklisted account which is a little bit scary in my mind. Yeah, it's a known validator set. So you put down your stake and you are known. The only way that you could be blacklisted, as it were, I mean, there are in-protocol ways to do it, right? So being slashed is exactly that. And there are rules. And if you misbehave, you get kicked out of the protocol. Now, if somebody were to do a takeover of the chain by acquiring a vast amount of Ether, it would have to be 4 or 5% of the total ether supply, then you could identify that and then consensus among you know, all the other participants in the chain, blacklist them manually in that case, basically fork, fork away your own fork of the chain, they're off on their own fork of the chain. And you know, the community has to decide which fork they follow, a bit like the old Dow fork, which uh, was five years ago, but perhaps different in some ways. That was a bug, not an attack. The DAO hack is something we have to go into at one of these points, because honestly, that was the creation of the Ethereum classic blockchain, which to this day, I think like relations have become a lot more amicable between the Ethereum and the Ethereum classic communities. But for a time, it was very, very tense. It was spicy. That was my first journey in Ethereum. My first ever Ethereum transaction was voting for the DAO fork, but we'll, we'll do that another time. That was July will be like the fifth anniversary or something. So we can <laughs> talk. That might be a perfect time. I'm a little bit concerned about how the social dynamics of Ethereum might have more power in a proof of stake context in that forking certain accounts, if they are seen to be malicious and hold more than four or 5% of the coin to be able to blacklist that account and then move away. That kind of power, that kind of potential, drawing consensus on Bitcoin to do something like that requires just so much more time and coordination and energy than I think it does on Ethereum because Ethereum is used to doing hard forks. It's mm. used to making these kinds of decisions in a very rapid manner. Don't get me wrong. There's no plan to do this. This is the absolute last resort. And actually, it's like the nuclear option, right? It's the threat of being able to fork an attacker off the chain ought to be enough that there's never an attacker who tries to, to do a takeover. It's mutually assured destruction. That's the idea. So, you know, hopefully we will never, ever get into that situation. But if we did, we have a big red button we can press as a community. It's not in Vitalik's basement. You know, this is has to be a complete consensus across the community and say, OK, thus far and, and no further to the attacker. Anyway, Christine, we need to wrap up. <laughs> I can't Thanks. wait for like a Cuban missile crisis moment on Ethereum. <laughs> no, I'm no, going to no, be no. on we're the not, lookout for that. We're not getting there. <laughs> 
Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. Join us again next week for another weekly roundup of all your markets, tech, and community updates related to the ongoing and active evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. If you have any questions, then connect with either of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. Also, please subscribe to our newsletters. I write one every week on Ethereum 2.0 development, and you can find that at coindesk.com. Ben also writes one called What's New in ETH2. He puts out a new issue bi-weekly and you can find it at eth2.news or follow him on Twitter and he'll let you know when the next one is out. See you next week for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.